It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of Radio.com Sports. Radio.com Sports presents Big Time Baseball, brought to you by 2019 Mercedes-Benz A-Class, filling in for veteran play-by-play man Josh Lewin. I'm Rob Bradford, alongside well-respected baseball insider John Heyman. John has been covering Major League Baseball for the past four decades, starting on the Yankees beat with Newsdays, and now he's an insider for MLB Network. 670 The Score and WFAN. Each week we'll bring you insight into the top stories across Major League Baseball, including a rundown of the happenings in each division. All of our episodes will also include a chat with some of the best baseball voices around the country. This week we'll be chatting with Joe Girardi, four-time World Series champion and a valued Radio.com sports insider, along with former Dodgers general manager Ned Coletti, who's in... Emmy Award-winning analyst for Spectrum Sportsnet LA. Big-time baseball is part of the Radio.com, which allows you to, to listen to your favorite stations for free. Anytime, anywhere. Listen to over 300 stations and over 1,100 podcasts. Explore by location or genre to find music, news, and sports from your own location or across the country. You can follow Radio.com Sports on Twitter at RDC Sports, and be sure to subscribe to Big Time Baseball on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. You got to do it. There is no question about it. You know what we have to do? We have to get one of the best baseball insiders on the horn here right now. John Heyman. John, always enjoy talking with you. And listen, this is, this is, uh, I did a little bit of this with Josh Lewin. But now it's you and I. It's trade deadline. This is a great, great time of year. Good to, good to hear from you, John. Hey, Rob. Welcome. It's going to be fun. we got a good lineup today. So, all right, let's get right to it. A lot of it has been talked about. Uh, we can talk about the trade deadline, which we will. We're going to have a couple of great interviews. But something happened on the field, which every once in a while we get something like this, which is a hot-button topic, which is it goes to the state of the game of baseball. And we had that moment on Sunday. Jonathan Lucroy got run over by Jake Marisnik. Houston Astros runs over the Angels catcher. 
a lot of controversy from both sides, a lot of tweets flying back and forth. You know, first off, I just want to get your take because I don't this is one of the rare things, John, where you have you don't have a definitive this guy was right and this guy was wrong. There's a lot of room for interpretation. What was yours? Yeah, I, I thought your phraseology was correct, run over. Uh, it's like a truck. And if you remember from high school physics, uh, momentum equals mass times velocity. And Mariznik is just a truck. I mean, this guy is built like Samarja. Could have been a football player. I don't know if he played football, but he's a big guy who's very, very fast. I thought, like he said, I thought it was a bad play. He didn't say dirty play. It's hard to tell. Unless you're in someone's mind, you you don't know that. I do think it was a bad play. I do think the umpires got it right. I feel terrible for Lucroy, who's actually one of my favorite players in the game, at least personally. Terrific guy. We all hope he just recovers as quickly as possible. I, I thought it was the wrong play. I mean, I could see how you could look at it and say, you know, he's trying to get to the home. It's uh, questionable whether Lucroy, the positioning was perfect. Uh, but to me, I, I think Mariznik was wrong in this play, and it was a bad play. You know, I guess there's two different conversations. There's one with a rule, the rule, which we really haven't talked about a whole lot since it was changed back in 2014, and then the intent of Mariznik. And, and I'm sort of with you, John. Like, the I understand Marisnik feels bad about this. I understand where he's coming from and saying, I was trying to do this and then end up being that. But looking back at this time since we've had this Buster Posey rule, we haven't really seen a lot of this, have we? I mean, we haven't had these conversations no. No. in large part because of how, how quickly people have adapted this rule. Right. That was the intention of the rule was to protect these catcher after Buster Posey was run over and lost significant time the rest of that year. And uh, obviously Posey, a major star and baseball took notice. And I, one thing that Rob Manfred, the commissioner, has done is really uh, try to ensure that there's safety in play. And, um, you know, I, it's not perfect. There's no way to say that we can eliminate uh, collisions and that we can eliminate injuries. Uh, but in this case, as I said, you can't get inside his head. You don't know for sure, but he looked like he came in high, looked like his hand was out first, and didn't look like he took the most direct route to the plate. So I, I'm going to say I'll agree with Mariznik. That was a bad play. All right, so a lot of conversation at this time of year. We talk about trade deadline, which we're going to get a whole lot into. Um, but also around the best, who is having the best first half? Who has emerged as the superstars? And Twitter account MLB Stats has, has a great tweet. Fernando Tatis Jr. joins Mike Trout in 2012 as the only rookies to have 10 home runs, 10 stolen bases, and a 950-plus OPS at the All-Star break. I, and yet we're sitting here and we are not calling Fernando Tatis Jr. an All-Star. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this is the most obvious snub at this point. I, I think Machado actually should have made the team as well, but those stats are absolutely fabulous. Uh, obviously, Trout was the rookie of the year, deserved it to be on the All-Star team. Now he's the only one with these stats who's not an All-Star. Uh, you're going to have snubs here and there. To me, this is an obvious one. I, I think the fans did fantastic with the voting. Tatis obviously missed a lot of time. And at the time of all the voting, he may not, his stats may have not stood out. But now here we are at the All-Star game. And I think it's fair to say he's one of the best handful of players in the game. And I think it's a shame he is not there. I think there are perhaps too many rules hamstringing the league. 
and and the and the player vote. Uh, I I don't know why we need two second basemen, two first basemen, two every position. That's one thing I don't get, and I'm not sure why teams that are shall we say tanking. Maybe that's a little harsh, but teams that are not really going for it this year or on a rebuild should all deserve to have an all-star representative. I think the union proposed that uh, not every team should have an all-star representative. If some if a team isn't deserving, uh, that there shouldn't be a, an all-star representative other than the home team. Whatever the home team is should have an all-star representative. And I'm kind of in agreement on that one. Uh, you know, we have certainly a lot of teams that are not going for it this year, uh, Baltimore, Miami, and some others. And uh, I'm, I don't believe that uh, every team should have an all-star. My, my default to that conversation about, and I, I agree with you, that this is sort of ridiculous. We are putting square pegs in round holes a lot of times when getting these guys in the all-star rosters, when a lot of guys are being left off who are having a better year. And, and my guy, who we being growing up in Boston and covering the team in Boston was always Scott Cooper. Scott Cooper made the team. Remember him? I mean, I think it was 92 or 93, 94. I mean, this guy had six home runs at the break. Um, He had, he was hitting 270. There's always these guys and good for them for being classified as all-stars. But when you're not allowing guys like this, Fernando Tatis Jr. or some other, somebody else, because of this rule that you talked about, it really surfaces, and you remember, I remember Scott Cooper a whole lot more because of this ridiculous nature of, of getting these guys on the team. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. I've forgotten uh, that he made an all-star team or that even Boston would have a, a guy who didn't deserve it. Now it's but the other always, way around. But there's always a guy been... like this, right, though, John? I mean, this... <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of them tell their grandkids, but uh, I think the fans should see the best players, and Tatis is certainly... Uh, one of the best players going. So to me, this is the biggest oversight. I, I'm not of a mind where a guy, if a guy's a superstar, if he's not having the year, he shouldn't be there. So I, I think it's okay that Bryce Harper is not there. I think he's doing fine. He's got a nice total of RBIs. He's hitting run, with runners in scoring position. But to me, he didn't really qualify for the All-Star team this year. I do think Machado did, and Tatis obviously did. Paul DeYoung, who I like personally, having a, an okay first half, uh, is a shortstop on the NL team. Look at his stats compared to Tatis. They're not even close. All right, now we're going to get to the first half. Well, obviously, the all-star break doesn't really mathematically signal the, the middle of the year, but for all intents and purposes, it sort of <laughs> does. We look at the, the first half of the year, and, and to me, watching this team, the team I'm about to mention, they have separated themselves, and that's the New York Yankees. I don't know if you're coming away with the same sort of feel, but I haven't seen a team feel like this. And I, I covered the Red Sox team last year, team that starts out 17-2. and two. This Yankees team, when I've seen them anyway, they seem just like head and shoulders above everybody else. I don't know if you get the same vibe or not. Uh, you know, the Yankees have been extremely impressive, and to do with all of the guys on the injured list that they've done it, and at one time they had about 10 stars on the on the list, and for most of the year they've had 12 or 13 guys on the list. So I think they're having an incredible first half, but I think the Dodgers have been there equal, and it's interesting the two marquee, if you want to say that, franchises in baseball have been the two best teams. And uh, right now, I mean, we've seen the Yankees play the Dodgers in the World Series uh, quite a few times, not recently maybe, but we've seen it quite a few times, and that certainly would be an interesting uh, World Series if that were to come to pass. And I'd say at this point, I'd make the Dodgers the overwhelming favorite in the NL. They've, they've been 
way better than anybody in that, their league. The Yankees have been equal to the Dodgers, perhaps, but uh, they've got a little more competition, I think, in the American League, particularly with the Astros and their uh, that top of the rotation that they have. You know, one of the numbers that jumps out to me with the Yankees, John, is is record about against teams above 523 and 15. And you say, well, that's okay. But then you look at these other teams. I mean, Tampa 25 and 27, the Red Sox 17 and 25, Minnesota 19 and 18. 20, 23 and 15 shows you something. And I, and I'm with you with the Dodgers. I just wonder sort of along the lines of what they ran into last year, where you're sort of cruising along against National League teams. When you hit the iron, when you hit the Houstons, and when you hit the Yankees, and when you hit these other teams, are you going to be able to give the same image in, in that World Series that, that, for instance, like they weren't able to last year? Yeah, I'm not sure they'll be favored in the World Series once they get there, but just to get to the World Series, I think they have the best chance of anybody just because I, I feel like there's a big gap between Dodgers and second team in the NL, whereas the Yankees have other competition. Uh, the Yankees historically have just beaten up on bad teams or teams that um, some in some cases are psyched out by the Yankees and coming to New York, I, I mean, even growing up. Uh, there were three teams that just could not beat the Yankees, particularly in Yankee Stadium, and that's the White Sox, Cleveland, and Minnesota. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, they are very good at beating bad teams, and they've expanded that. It feels like Tampa, which is a good team, is one of those teams that just can't beat the Yankees. And they, they beat everybody else but not the Yankees, and that may explain that record of 23-15. and 15. Is there, John, do is, you think there's a team laying in the weeds here? You know, like we look at the Nationals and – the resurgence that they made after a slow start. Do you think there's a are they that maybe the team laying in the weeds that they maybe emerged a little earlier than some of the other teams? But there's always one or two teams that when the All Star break we put them in the rearview mirror, all of a sudden they caught fire and they give an impression that we weren't anticipating for the second half. Yeah, I like your pick there. Uh, the Nats. Uh on paper look really good. Obviously they have an excellent top three in the rotation. They have a very good lineup with lots of young stars. Uh, that's a big plus. Uh, it looked like we were talking about Scherzer on the trade deadline, uh, on the, on the trading block. That obviously is not happening now. So, uh, yeah, the Nats are a threat. Uh, the A's are always a second half team and they've shown some signs of coming on in the last couple of weeks. And, uh, to me, they're a threat in the American League. So you, you've got a, one in each league. I think those would be my two picks for uh, second-half threats. Yeah, I like the A's. I mean, people are a little sleeping on them a little bit, 50 and 41, uh, nine games heading into the All-Star break, nine games over 500 heading in the All-Star break. And But to your point, this is a team that historically does very, very well in the second half. And, and you know, this is a lot of it is, is springboard. It's the springboard is making the trades, the trade deadline, but there is going to be a team here, and, and I, along the lines of that conversation, you have a player that you think either is going to sustain what they have done, their excellence in the first half, or you think is primed to really break off and enter into maybe MVP or Cy Young conversation. Yeah, I'm not sure if he's uh, ready to break off, but uh, one of the most disappointing players, I would say, in the first half and uh, really shocking because he was third in the MVP voting the last two years is Jose Ramirez. I mean, if he takes off, I could see Cleveland uh, getting back into that race. They've got uh, uh, pitchers who are hoping to come back, uh, certainly 
Clevenger had an injury. Uh, Kluber, uh, a big star, he comes back. I, we saw with Cookie Carrasco, that would be fantastic if he was able to come back. He has his announcement of leukemia. He says it's under control, uh, and that is fabulous news there. So uh, Cleveland could easily come back. I, I actually was one of those that picked the Twins, but uh, I do see a threat in Cleveland. And if you look at Jose Ramirez's numbers, they're nothing like they were the last two years. So I could see him making a nice comeback and having a big second half. Yeah, that's a great one. And, you know, I'll go to the Red Sox where you look at Mookie Betts, and Mookie Betts is having an okay year. He made the all-star team, although I, I think that if you put true serum, actually not even true serum, I don't think that he was saying that I should have made the all-star team. But Mookie Betts is a guy, if he's able to find the groove that he obviously found on the way to the MVP last year, that changes the dynamic, at least in the wild card race, a little bit. Um, and so it, it's, it will be interesting. It, 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 you talked about the Twins. You picked the Twins. What prediction do you want back? And we all listen. <laughs> we all want all our predictions back most of the time. But what specific one is saying, oh, man, I did not see that coming? Well, I, I'd say the whole NL East, I blew. Uh, I had uh, Philly winning it. Uh, I'm not going to quite give up on that, but my second team, which I had as a wild card, is the Mets. Uh, I'll take that one back right now. They're not going to be the wild card. They're not in it. Uh, you know, it's uh, shocking to most of us. Obviously, the general manager, Brody Van Wagen, said, come get us, and boy, everybody has come and gotten them. Uh, they are not a good team. They have a terrible bullpen. They have no defense. Uh, that's the one I want back, obviously. Hey, John, before we get to our, our first interview with Joe Girardi, you know, I do want to ask you about this, and I'm trying to get my head around it. We're entering the trade deadline here, and everyone is sort of trying to figure out what this is going to mean where you don't have the extra waiver trade deadline. You don't have that option, and it's not easy to get guys through waivers. I understand that. But to limit it to one trade deadline, do you think this will affect how teams do go about their business heading into into the, the latter weeks of July, or do you think it's sort of business as usual? You know, I, it might be business as usual, as boring an answer as that is. Uh, you know, teams are just going to make their decisions whether they think they're in it or not. And what we have here now is a lot of people thinking they're in it. Uh, look at the National League. It may take 85 or 87 wins only to get into the playoffs, and it's hard to say you're out of it. I mean, we talked about the Mets. They think they're out of it. I know they haven't quite decided yet, but they're out of it. But that whole central, as crazy as it is, they're all in it. So we talked about Pittsburgh being a seller. I mean, maybe some people thought Cincinnati could be a seller. I don't see that happening. Um, you know, I think we have not that many sellers, not that much great stuff to sell. And it's a real seller's market. So we're going to see some overpays. I think that's going to be the big difference in this market as compared to some others. All right, there's a lot of trade deadline stuff to get to. We're going to get to it later in the show. We're going to talk to Ned Coletti, also former GM of the Dodgers, now a television analyst for Spectrum Sportsnet LA. But first, we're going to talk to a former manager and a guy who is most likely, I would imagine, going to be a manager somewhere in the in the not-so-distant future, and that is Joe Girardi. Well, we're honored to be joined by Radio.com Sports Insider, Joe Girardi. Joe, how you doing? I'm good, Rob. John, how are you? Excellent, excellent. So I just wanted, we're heading into the second half, or, or what they call the second half here in Major League Baseball. Off the, off the top, I just have to ask you, is when you look at the landscape of baseball right now, the landscape of what we're dealing with with these teams, what team 
do you feel, and this is a very simplistic question, but what team do you feel is the best team right now, the absolute team to beat? New York Yankees, the best bullpen. I think they have the best lineup, and I think their starting pitching will do enough that they are the team to beat in the World Series. And I know the Los Angeles Dodgers have played extremely well, but when you look at the Los Angeles Dodgers, to me, um, their starting rotation is left-handed oriented, and I like that Yankees lineup against left-handers. Hey, Joe, John Heyman here. I, I was going to ask you something else, but uh, your answer there uh, brought up the Yankees. So I thought I, I'd ask you this, since uh, obviously you had a surprise ending with the Yankees. Uh, you did a terrific job managing in both places that you managed with manager of the year in uh, Miami and were let go. Had a very nice run with the Yankees. Excellent. Ten years, uh, won a World Series, got within one game of getting to the World Series your last year. Uh, it ended, obviously, surprisingly to most of us and abruptly. And, uh, you know, I'm just wondering, you're, you're a magnanimous fellow. You named the Yankees as the best team of the first half. So I, I kind of know what you think. But uh, well, how do you feel about that whole thing that went down now? I mean, were you sh- as shocked as I was? And uh, h- how do you look at it? Obviously, the people are yeah. looking at different things for a manager today. I don't know. But w- what's your look back on that? Yeah, I was shocked and I was disappointed, and I let that be known um, two years ago. And I was excited about the direction that the Yankees were moving in. Uh, you know, for the three or four years previous to that, we were an aging group uh, that struggled with injuries and performance of some of the veteran guys that we had it was not what they had done in the past, and a lot of that had to do with age. So. I was excited about the prospects of the team that was coming back in 2018, and I was disappointed. You know, Joe, along those lines, you, you, you take a step back from managing, and then you look at, after a couple of years uh, from the outside looking in. How do you view what a manager is right now? Because we're sitting here in Boston, and and we had went from John Farrell to Alex Cora, and a lot of people said, well, Alex Cora fit this generation of baseball players better. Do you buy into that? Do you believe that managing has changed that dramatically over the last couple of years? Uh, I think it has changed somewhat. I think communication styles are are, are different than they were maybe 10 years ago with players. But I still think the bottom line is understanding the best situation to put a player in to be successful. Um, and, And that's through analytics. That's through your eyes. That's through knowing the player personally and what's going on in his life. So I think, the relationship has always been an important factor in managing. You just need to communicate a little bit different to players. And some of the information that you give to them is different than what we would have had 10 years ago. But again, it's putting them in the best situation to be successful. Miami, you were considered a young guy without a tremendous amount of experience. Zero. Uh, I always... Okay, zero. That's true. Uh, I always looked at you as a guy who was analytically uh, oriented, who did pay strong attention to the numbers anyway. So I I would think you fit uh, the new breed, uh, whoever is doing the evaluating now. Uh, But, I mean, how do you look at it? You've done a terrific job as a broadcaster. You're fantastic on games and uh, on a desk as well. But how do you look at it? How How interested are you? And we know you have some interest in being in managing again, but 
How interested are you? How picky might you be? It was reported last year you had an interview with Cincinnati, so you showed some interest in it, but then it appeared like you dropped out when, in the final three. Uh, I mean, are you targeting certain teams? Are you willing to manage in certain areas? Are you going to play it by ear? How, how are you looking at it right now? No, I don't really have a particular team that I'm looking at. I'm not looking at a particular situation. I've been through a lot of different situations. I've been with rebuilds in Miami and, you know, it's somewhat of a rebuild in New York. I've been with young players and I've, you know, I've enjoyed that immensely. I've been with older players. I've enjoyed that immensely. You know, I've been with veteran laden teams where you go into spring training and 24 of the 25 guys are already on the team and you're only trying to figure out one guy. And then I look at the situation I had in Florida. Uh, I knew about three guys that were going to be on the team and that was Miguel Cabrera um, was one of those guys. And so it doesn't, it doesn't really matter to me. Um, I'm excited, uh, to try to manage again. I want to try to manage again and we'll see if I get an opportunity. Joe Girardi, Radio.com Sports Insider, joins us. And, Joe, shifting gears to on the field, we just had an incident, which I think it rings um, near and dear to your heart maybe as a former catcher, where Jake Marisnik, it collides into Jonathan Lucroy. Obviously, concussion ensues. Um, this goes back to the rule change in 2014. A lot of controversy surrounding this. I'm really anxious to get your take on it because, I, like I said before, I think that you come from a unique perspective. Yeah, I think everyone's going to have a different take on it. I think fan bases are going to have a different take on it. If you're a Houston fan, you're going to protect your guy. And if you're an Angel guy, you're going to protect your guy. The thing is, when I look at Jake Marisnak, you know, the ball was, was coming on in. He was focused on, on you know, scoring that run because that was a big run. And when it's a sack fly and you're tagging up, there really is no direct path to home plate because – the catcher is allowed to put his foot on, on the line, which directly towards third base. But he had to leave his line and had to go up the line and was in fair territory. And it looked like Jake deviated from his. Now, did Jake think that he was going to cross the line possibly and was going to go to the inside? Possibly. I didn't necessarily see it that way. And the reason I think he was called out because – he was not making an attempt to get to home plate. If you look at his line, he would have, if he would have continued on a straight line when he ran into him, he would have never, ever reached home plate. He wouldn't have been able to tag it, I believe, with his hand or anything. And the other thing is that he lowered his shoulder. And look, I've done that. I've been on both sides of that. I've been the guy that's initiated the contact, and I've been that guy that's received the contact. The game has changed. They have tried to take that play out to protect the catchers. It's really the Buster Posey rule. So I think Jake was in the wrong there. I don't think that he was trying to hurt anyone. I think he was trying to score the run. And and I'm not so even so sure that it was premeditated. But I think his read was incorrect. And again, you know, it goes back to, to the other thing that I think that baseball players on deck have lost the sense of what their responsibility is. Their responsibility is to help that player read that play. And so many times that guy is not even there doing his job. So fundamentally, I think there were two mistakes. The one by Jake Marisnik because he didn't follow the throw and where the throw was going. And two, by the guy that was on deck that's supposed to help Jake Marisnik make a decision. And I'm sure Jake feels bad. Um, I'm worried about, you know, what happened to Jonathan Lecroy. There's obviously issues with his nose. He hit his head extremely hard. I think he was knocked out for a second. And I just believe that Jake was in the wrong. I don't think 
he was trying to hurt him. I think he was playing hard. But with the way the rule is stated today, I believe that he was in the wrong. And the consequence was he was called out. Wow, that was a fantastic answer. I, I think we asked the right person that question. That when, That's what makes you such a great announcer as well. You really pick your words precisely. I know you were at Northwestern when I was there. You weren't in journalism, but you, you could have been, and you probably could teach it now. Uh, I'm going to switch gears back, though. And, you know, there's some excitement in New York now. Uh, obviously, uh, the Mets are not performing as uh, people expected, certainly as they expected. Uh, there is a lot of heat right now on Callaway, and there's a, some speculation about the next manager. And most of that speculation really has been centering uh, on you uh, potentially uh, joining the Mets. Um, I want to ask you uh, what you think about New York, what you think about that in general. Uh, you, you've been, I guess you've been uh, a Cub, uh, you've, but you've been, certainly been a Yankee, and not only as an announcer and a player, but certainly 10 years as a manager. Uh, some people say that uh, they wouldn't give the control to the manager, uh, don't pay like the Yankees. And so I was going to ask you generally what your thoughts are about that speculation. Do you hear it, and uh, how do you receive it? Well, I've, I've been let go twice, basically, and it's hard. So for anyone that's even rumored to be let go, I feel for them in their situation because I know Mickey Calloway has put his heart and soul in this and is doing everything he can, you know, to turn that club around and get them on the right track. Um, you know, have the, their bullpen has had their struggles. Offensively, they've, you know, they've had to rely on the kids and some of the veterans haven't done what people expected them to do. But if I'm, if I'm the New York Mets, I look at where the Washington Nationals were and how they've turned it around and say, why not us? I mean, when you look at the Washington Nationals, they have the big three at the top of the rotation. Well, I think you could say that about the Mets. They have three or four guys that could really get it done. Um, you look at the struggles that the Washington Nationals bullpen had. I think the Mets have the, the talent to turn it around. So, you know, there's a lot of familiarity with me in New York, and, and maybe that's why you hear my name, you know, um, sometimes. But I feel for these guys what they're going through because – I don't ever want anyone to be let go because I know how difficult it is. All right, Joe, excellent stuff as always. Thanks again, man, for, for joining us. It's going to be an exciting last couple months, last, I guess, three months or so, and, and uh, look forward to talking to you down the road. All right, thanks, guys. Have a great day. Well, it's great to be joined by Ned Coletti, Dodgers general manager from 2004 to 2015 and now an Emmy Award-winning analyst for Spectrum Sportsnet LA. Ned, we just interviewed Joe Girardi. And I think you know Joe a little bit, don't you? Well, I've known Joe Girardi since he was probably 21 years old. Drafted him with the Cubs and then uh, watched him uh, get to the big leagues and start to become a, a good leader and a good catcher for our Cubs teams. Spent a lot of time with him in the off season, And, in fact, back in the winter of um, 07, the fall of 07, Joe and I talked many times about him coming to lead the Dodgers right before Joe Torre became available. And when Joe became available, Yankee job opened up. That was where Girardi's heart was. So he went to the Yankees, and we went and were able to hire Joe Torre. So Mr. Girardi and I go back uh, as a executive and a, as a player and then as a GM and uh, somebody looking for a manager and somebody who thought very highly of him. Not to put you on the spot too much, Ned, but uh... Did you actually offer him the job, or was he in line to get that job? He, yeah, he was. Uh, we had contract discussions on term and rate, and um, just as we were we were coming down to, to kind of finishing it off, at least in my mind. Um, and he had come out here to visit. He was doing a network 
analyst work during the postseason, so he was in L.A., so he had a chance to meet ownership. And um, as time went on, uh, as soon as we got to that level, that point, uh, Joe Torre left the Yankees. And the minute Joe Torre left the Yankees, I, call, I called Joe. I knew Joe very well. Um, and I said, hey, you know, they're going to come after you for that Yankee job. And he says, you think? I said, yeah, I, I, I can pretty much guarantee that, that Cash is going to call you. And I said, so you got to tell me where your heart's at at that point in time. Well, you know, I was doing TV for him. I really, you know, it's, it's kind of the team I know the best. I'd probably have to do that if they offered it. I said, just, just so I know, so I know what I have to do. And um, with that, uh, you know, he, he went off in that direction, and I immediately called Joe Torre, met with Joe Torre in, in Las Vegas at an event that uh, Joe and Allie Torre were attending. And uh, started talking to Joe, brought him to L.A. the next day, and he met the ownership. And about a week later, Joe Toy was our manager, and Joe Girardi was Cassius. Wow! Well, this is see, this is why I love ta- <laughs> this is why I love talking. You talk about the inside, what happened, uh, the stories behind the stories. I got another one for you. So, you, in your book, The Big Chair, excellent yeah. book, excellent book. You talk a lot about a, a topic that was near and dear to my heart, covering the Red Sox in Boston, the Manny Ramirez trade. Yeah. So you go, you go back to that, and obviously that trade was maybe an outlier from the, from the usual trade deadlines, trades, and every trade everything that goes into it. But if you can talk about what you want to accomplish in terms of of, of when you have a team like you had back then in 2008 and the importance of getting a big-name guy. In this case, in this year, it might be Madison Bumgarner or someone along those lines. What that does to a team and the risks that you run when you make a trade like that. Well, that's a great topic. The the Manny situation was very, very interesting for a long period of time. Uh, Grady Little, who was my first manager in here in in L.A., uh, we got off a flight going to the winter meetings in Orlando, and um, he said, hey, I think Theo's going to come and talk to you about Manny Ramirez. I said, really? He goes, yeah, it's starting to get a little bit dicey there, and uh, you know, I've got information there because Grady had managed there that uh, you, know, you may be getting a call. So Theo, sure enough, we met. I think it was in Orlando. Uh, Theo and I met on Manny a handful of times, and all private. Uh, none of my inner circle, none of his inner circle, just he and I. And um, so I knew that there was always a chance he would move him in the right situation. Uh, he wanted a, a load of our younger players at that point in time. It was Russell Martin and um, and Matt Kemp, guys like that, who we were not ready to to move on from at that point. So you fast forward to '08, and it's uh, it's near the end of the uh, of July. I went down and told Joe, you know, we got nothing really going on. But then I stopped and I said, hey. If I should get a call tomorrow from Boston on Manny Ramirez, what are your thoughts? And Joe lit up. <laughs> and Joe had never managed him except in all-star games, but he had sure managed against him. And so he said, you got a shot to get Manny Ramirez. I said, I don't know. I haven't talked to Theo about it, but I could tell by Theo's voice that you know, the chance of him going to Miami is, is, not, is not sound right now. I don't think that's going to happen. And I do believe Theo thinks he's going to have to move him. I said, so you never know. And, and when you get down to this point in time, you're talking about midnight on the, on the 30th of July, which is 3 a.m. on the East Coast, and you have a 4 p.m. deadline at that point in time uh, on the East Coast for a trade, you know, you're, you're running out of time. And uh, so we left it there. I did some more work. I went home. I was home for about an hour or two, took a little nap. Got up about 4 o'clock in the morning and go back down to the office, and uh, I had a text message from Theo to give him a call. 
And I gave him wow. a call, and he said, hey, would you have interest in Manning? <laughs> and uh, one thing led to another. We got the Red Sox to pay the remaining dollars on Manny's contract. Uh, we sent them Andy LaRoche, and we sent them Brian Morris, a relief pitcher, who they sent to Pittsburgh. And that was where Andy LaRoche was always going to be ticketed. And all these, these three weeks of conversation with Theo, Andy LaRoche was always moving on to Pittsburgh in a, in a three-way deal. Whether we were involved in it or not, that was really what the – where Pittsburgh had had an interest, and I had known that from conversations with Neil Huntington uh, a little bit, but you know, Theo was was the one trying to orchestrate it that way, and uh, we ended up pulling off the deal. And that deal came to came to be really the morning of the deadline, and we were in a different ownership situation then. We weren't taking on salary. I had a chance to get CC Sabathia the day before Milwaukee got him. I had a chance to get CC and Jamie Carroll and Casey Blake from Cleveland. Uh, that didn't happen. I went back a week later and got, got Casey Blake. And um, Manny changed our team. Ned, so. Ned has a million great stories, and that's why his book, uh, The Big Chair, is so fabulous. I mean, uh, he's worked for three marquee franchises and he's got stories about all of them. I'm going to switch gears a little bit to yeah. a, another superstar that you acquired, which is Cody Bellinger. And you're watching him now as a broadcaster with the Dodgers, and uh, you were the general manager of the team uh, when Logan White and yourself and the others decided to take Bellinger. This was a little bit controversial at the time. Not as many people followed the draft then. I was one of those freaks who did. And uh, it was a fourth rounder. I think you paid him $700,000. Looks like an amazing bargain now. But there were a lot of guys, particularly on the analytics side, who said he had one home run as a senior. Yep. I believe it was a senior in high school. Uh, this is a bit of a gamble to even spend $700,000. Can you recall that at the time? Oh, yeah, the, absolutely. The, the discussion in the draft room and how that was settled and you took Bellinger. Well, you're right. I mean, he was. it's, it's rare that you would take a high school, if you just look at it from the surface, it's rare you're going to take a high school first baseman anywhere high in the draft unless they are like way above everybody's skill level. And he had one home run. So there's a lot of people who said, you know, what are they doing? This guy could be there in the 10th round, 15th round. You know, there should not be a rush to draft this guy. But Logan and, uh, and his guys, they kept coming to me and we were having meetings and, and watching the kid play. And we obviously knew his dad. I had been with his dad in the San Francisco system, uh, knew him, knew how he worked, knew how he tried to get to the big leagues. And while he didn't have a, a major league career of note with the Giants, he obviously won some rings on the East Coast later on. So we knew kind of the DNA of the kid. And we also looked at him, and with, except without experience, he wasn't ready to play in the big leagues offensively. But even at 18 years old, the way his hands worked, the way his feet worked at first base, he was as slick and as smooth a first baseman I've ever seen, especially at that age. He was really good around the bag. And I thought, you know what, he's got athleticism to him. He's got a good DNA to him. Uh, he's going to grow some more. Uh, it was, it was, a, was a tall kid, but, but that didn't, hadn't, hadn't filled out yet. Still really hasn't filled out tremendously, but strong, strong kid today at 23. But we also saw athleticism. And while we drafted him as a first baseman, we did think, you know what, this kid's got a chance to play the outfield if we need it. He's left-handed, so he's not going to play any other first baseman, uh, any other infield spots. But he could play the outfield, and he could be a gold glove player in center field, right field, left field, 
plus first base. So let's gamble on that. Let's gamble on the athleticism. Let's gamble on him growing a little bit more physically. And you, you see a lot of hitters that don't have a lot of power early, and they figure out how to use their body, and they figure out how to, how to really hit. And, and suddenly things change. And so that was, that's how the draft came about. And we also took the other approach with him. Some players I would wait and wait and wait, promoting them from level to level to level to level. After getting to know him and seeing how his mind worked, we started to put him up a level maybe half a year early, where he was the youngest guy or close to the youngest player in almost every league he played in on his way up in order to really challenge him. Because I think the minor leagues, a lot of reasons they got players in the minor leagues. One of them is to have them learn how to adjust and learn how to fail and how to, get a, how to overcome a failure, how to get better at what they do. So we challenged him by putting him with older guys, and he would struggle for two weeks, four weeks, five weeks. Next thing you know, boy, he started to figure it out. And the teams he was on, like Seegers, they started to win. And little by little, we just kept graduating them and, and moving them early, challenging them early, struggle for a minute. Next thing you know, we'd figure it out. And I thought that was a great training ground for a player in the minor leagues. Uh, great, great to really get them better. Get them to be better and better and better in front of 5,000 people, 2,000 people, instead of expecting them to do it for the first time at Javed's Ravine in front of 50,000 people. So that's kind of the walk on, on, uh, on Cody, both the draft and also the player development stage of it, where we continue to, to challenge him, and he met the challenges. And when he goes through tough times in the big leagues now, and they're fewer and fewer, but everybody goes through them, I always have confidence he's going to figure it out, and that's what he's done. Ned, last question. In simple terms, why is this Dodgers team better than last year's Dodgers team? I cover the Red Sox. I obviously saw the World Series last year. That team, people forget how good it was because the Red Sox were just slightly better, and obviously the Red Sox have taken a little bit of a turn this time around. But why have the Dodgers really haven't had that same turn? Why are they better this time around? Well, I think they're so hungry because they haven't won it. And, it's, you know, they hear out here, we hear 31 years all the time, 1988, last time they won a World Series. So they continue to be hungry. I think Dave Roberts has done a great job with maintaining that mindset. Uh, I think there's a handful of reasons. I think they, they are better. I think when you have Ryu, who pitched good last year but kind of limited, you have him starting the All-Star game. 10-2, and two, ERA under two. He's pitched great. You didn't have that a year ago. You had some good productivity from him, but you didn't have this type of productivity from him. Bellinger is having perhaps a historic year. He may hit 60, may drive in 140, may hit, may you know maybe without Yelich, he may be a triple crown candidate in this league. He's having a, a an iconic type of year. When you think of this team and how good it is, how deep the pitching is, because you got three guys in the rotation going to the All-Star game, including Bueller, who's starting to mature, and I think he's got a chance to be one of the best. He might be Scherzer as time goes on. I think you got that dynamic to it. You've also got the competition that analytics also kind of puts into the midst of a team where guys want to play. And so from time to time, they're not getting a chance to play. So when they do get that chance, they are really riveted on it. Leading by 13, 14 games is, is nice, but you know they still want to play, and I think that helps. And I also think the last thing, which is probably as important as anything, and I see every game they play, there is not a lot of competition in this National League. 
There are few teams that can pitch. The games are far too long for most teams. They can get, they can handle the Dodgers for four or five innings. After that, you get into the weaker half of their bullpen, or you get a starting pitcher that starts to give it up because he's getting in the in the hitters counts. Guys can't pitch. Pitching is down. There's not enough good pitchers. We hardly see anybody, unless we're in New York or in um, in Washington, that can pitch with a Walker Bueller or with a Clayton or, or with a Ryu. They're, they're just not around. So these teams come in, Dodgers just take it to them. Ned, great stuff. The big, the big winner is us for all the great information, but we paid you a little bit. I just checked Amazon rankings for the big chair. It's through the roof because you sold it so, so well. <laughs> excellent, excellent book. Uh, Ned, thanks so much for joining us. Really great stuff. Uh, appreciate it and talk to you down the line. Always a pleasure, and good to be good to hear Mr. Heyman, my buddy. This is the time of year he and I would be talking about six times a year. I'd say, John, stop calling me. Oh I don't my. know anything. Leave Absolutely. me alone. Absolutely. That's the best. <laughs> <laughs> John Heyman, I'm Rob Brad for subbing in for Josh Lewin. Let's wrap up this episode by breaking down the latest in- information across Major League Baseball with John, one of the game's absolutely best insiders. Time to go around the diamond. First off, John. We're talking about buyers, sellers. How do you see the Giants? The Giants should be a great, great seller. And uh, Sam Dyson, Tony Watson are terrific. Uh, Mad Bum, we're going to have to see. He got hit on the elbow by a line drive. Uh, He could be the best uh, pitcher out there. uh, But I think teams are going to take a wait-and-see approach. So, uh People can look at the Giants and say it's going to be could be a great one, and but it may not be. And uh, you know, perhaps. And I don't think this is a long time to wait. Well, talking about top tier starters who might be available, where do you see Marcus Stroman's situation right now? Yeah, he should be available. He's got another year to go before free agency, so he should have a market. He kind of uh, suggested he'd be great for the Yankees. He came into New York and said he loves the bright lights. He is a Long Island boy, and uh, I'm sure he'd love to play on a contender, get to a contender. But uh, he's got a pectoral issue. They say he's going to be ready right after the break. Uh, I think teams, again, are going to take a way-to-see approach on him. I'm not sure the Yankees are that enamored with that idea or that he they feel that he can fit into their playoff rotation. He's been good in the clutch, maybe not like Mad Bum, who's an all-time great in terms of uh, postseason performance, but Stroman did win the WBC, has some stuff going for him. But I, I'm not sure that he's that high on the Yankee list. Well, uh, the Yankees don't want to give up on Clint Frazier. They like him, but you're talking about going having the chance to really put – a message out there to the rest of baseball. What do you think the Yankees end up doing? Do they get the Bumgarner? Do they get the Stroman? Do they absolutely get the high-profile guy at the deadline? I think they're going to come up with somebody. I know there's a split in their organization on, on Mad Bum. It's analytic people are questioning it a bit, and but I think if you've looked at the postseason and the Yankees, it lines up, makes sense. Uh, in terms of Clint Frazier, uh, they don't want to trade him for a, a rental. Uh, they like him very much. I think they hold on to him. The Rendon extension get done? I think it's got a chance now. I didn't think so until recently. The, the, the recent meeting, I think they've uh, moved toward each other a bit. Uh, I think the Nats probably improved their offer. Uh, my understanding is that the, they love Rendon, but there's a little bit of a split in the organization. Some of the analytics people are looking at it, uh, his age and injury history as a potential uh, uh, 
a question there. Obviously, uh, Rendon, uh, it's crazy that he's a first-time All-Star, uh, one of the better players in the game. And I think Arenado uh, is a good comp for him. And I think uh, that's what his side is probably looking at and can make the claim, too. If you look at Arenado's splits, maybe Rendon is, is at least as good a hitter, maybe better than Arenado. Of course, Arenado, a multi-time gold glove winner, uh, might have him slightly in the field. And I say that slightly because Rendon is really good as well. So I, I think it's got a shot now. You wouldn't think so. A guy who's a free agent after the year who's got Scott Boris. But uh, they are talking the last meeting. I think they made progress. All right, John, last one. We have chairs being thrown. We have reporters being chewed out. We have a lot going on with the Mets. Most importantly, they had in the All-Star break 10 games under 500. How do you think? How, how do you see things shaking out? in terms of Mickey Calloway and that organization. Yeah, this has been a weekly topic for us, the Mickey Calloway segment, <laughs> and I understand why it's been something else. Um, I do think that Brody Van Wagen and the, the chair thrower who you referred to uh, is a fan of Mickey Calloway, that he likes him very much, at least personally. I do think Jeff Wilp- Wilpon likes Mickey very much, and I think they're going to give him every chance uh, to do something. And uh, that means that he likely stays through the year. I think Brody Van Wagenen would like to do a search if he does come to that. Uh, and uh, that's probably what, what happens, that he lasts through the year and that they make a change after uh, the year. Uh, we'll see how Brody, what direction Brody would go in. Uh, the guy uh, that he'd most like to have is A.J. Hinch. Uh, Brody is his agent, though, or was his agent, and negotiated <laughs> a long and expensive deal uh, for A.J. Hinch, so he's not going anywhere. I think he'd probably like to make a trade. Uh, maybe his trades haven't worked out to this point, but he'd probably like to make a trade for Hinch. I don't see that happening. Uh, but he might take Hinch's advice. They've had Joe Espada there. Obviously, Alex Cora was a, a great, great coach under Hinch, and he recommended him to Boston. Boston picked up on that. They may have hired him anyway. Uh, and obviously helped them win the World Series last year. So I, I think that would be something to keep an eye on is uh, the Houston uh, pipeline uh, for Brody to look at. But I think Mickey Calloway makes it through the year, as we said last week and probably the week before that, but probably not any longer than that. There he is, John Heyman, the guy that you're going to be wanting to follow all throughout the next few weeks heading into the trade deadline. Only one trade deadline this time around. That's what makes it so important. John, man, thanks so much for letting me join you. It was a blast being part of this whole thing, and uh, and we'll be talking to you because there's a lot to talk about. Well, Rob, it's been a pleasure. Come back again. All right, this is Rob Bradford. Thanks so much to John Heyman. Thanks very, very much to Joe Girardi, Radio.com Sports Insider, Ned Coletti, analyst for Spectrum Sports LA, and all the listeners. Subscribe to this podcast. It's a great one. I re- listen to a ton of baseball podcasts. I listen to a ton of podcast but this is the one you're going to want to subscribe to big time baseball here on radio.com i'm rob bradford filling for josh lewin we'll see you next time this has been a presentation of radio.com sports okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with h track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. 
Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 